0: listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. You ever watch one of those whodunit mystery shows? You know, like uh, Back in the day, it was like Murder She Wrote. You remember Angela Lansbury? She was so cool. And then there was Annie Griffith and Matlock. But nowadays, it's the CSI and CSI Miami and CSI New York and CSI... Leland and csi southport like there's everybody 's got their own csi show and so but the, the point of these shows is that basically there's a crime at the beginning, right, and you know there's like this super sleuth uh, genius who's going to solve the crime, you know it, and it 's only going to take about forty five minutes like max and they 'll have it figured out, but you spend the whole show and, and you and you get first of all, you get to meet the main characters you know the main the main super sleuth detective, you know his assistant and and early on in the show, you kind of get this idea of who you think the suspect is, right? And you know who the victim is. And as the show progresses, you start to form your own conclusions. That's what they want you to do, right? And you're like, it was her. She did it. And you, you, start, to, you start to despise that character. You're like, Man, she did. she's definitely guilty. And she's got shifty eyes anyway. And I know, I know she did it, right? But then, suddenly the show always does this, every single time. And if it surprises you, I think I might have just ruined the show for you for the rest of your life. In the last five minutes, the detective is going to find some magical piece of evidence that nobody saw before or like some magical connection, and he's going to go, ha-ha. And suddenly, there's a plot twist, and there's this minor character, someone who's been riding in the background the whole time, probably somebody you met in the first scene, who turned out to be guilty in the end, right? Is that, is that how it goes? In fact, that's what ruins Scooby-Doo for me. Like, I'm just like, I, it was you. I, you're the first person I met. I know it's going to be you, and those crazy kids are going to solve the case again. Um, <laughs> and in the end, you're like, no way! It was the milkman. I totally didn't see that coming, right? It's the plot twist. It's someone riding in the background, a minor character, but suddenly they step into the spotlight, and they become the guilty party or the main character, or somehow they step into the spotlight and they take the stage. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking through the story that Jesus told one time. It was a story uh, in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 some today. Actually, we're going to be all over the Bible, but if you've got a Bible, go ahead and break it out. Uh, Free field. Feel free to use your, your app on your phone if you want to. Also, if you don't have a Bible, we give them away for free. Uh, there's a few scattered out on the floor, uh, the little, little green paperback Bibles. There's also, I think, some in the back as well. Uh, make sure you leave with one today. We want everybody to have a good Bible they can read. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15, and, and basically the story kind of goes basically like this. Uh, that once upon a time that there was this father, and he had two sons. And Jesus begins telling the story of the younger son. The younger son had gone to the father, asked for his inheritance early, which was kind of a slap in the face to the father because the father, well, wasn't dead yet. And so it's like, you can wait till I die to get your inheritance. No, dad, I want my inheritance. So the dad says, fine, take the inheritance and go. So the son leaves, goes to a distant land, and totally wastes his inheritance Historically and traditionally, this story's been called the prodigal son. The word prodigal means wasteful. And uh, so, hence our series title, Totally Wasted. This guy takes his inheritance, he takes the resources that his father has given him, even though he really didn't have to, and he blows it. And what Jesus calls, uh, he he wastes it on, um, he wastes it, he squandered his wealth on wild living. That's what I'm trying to say. It's right here on my iPad if I get lost. He squanders his wealth in wild living and, you know, that's kind of the main story and you might think that the story is over. Last week we talked about how the father embraced the son and welcomed him back home and how God, our father, is a father who runs. He runs to greet us despite the fact that it might seem undignified or improper for a father or especially God to somehow make the effort to go out to the son who was wasteful. But that's what God does for us and he embraces us and he forgives us. to some degree that story is over, right? That was it. We ended it last week, yay, close the curtain. Good story, Jesus. But the truth is, Jesus is not quite done. Yes, the story arc of the younger son is finished, but here at the very end, Jesus pulls a plot twist. A minor character that we met at the very beginning of the story, there once was a man who had two sons. Let's talk about the younger son. Suddenly, the older son steps into the spotlight. And it's in this moment that we find Jesus making the main point of his story. The main point of his story. Let's go look at it again. This is going to be in Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 25. Read this along with me. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. He was out there doing his thing, just in the field. And the the younger brother had come home. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. They were throwing a party for the younger son who had returned. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, What's going on? Now, notice the older brother missed completely that his younger brother had come home. You, you catch that? The younger brother come home, the, the father runs out to greet him, he kills the fatted calf, they throw a party. What's the older brother doing? He's out working. He's out in the field, he's working. Now, I give the guy props, he's working, he's doing his thing, but there's a great celebration going on. So he grabs somebody, and I, I can kind of relate to this guy, you've been that person, something big's happening, and you're just kind of standing there going, what happened? Like, what, what's going on? Why is everyone so excited? He asked the servant, who obviously had been paying better attention than he had. In verse 27, he says, Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has has him back safe and sound. At this point, you might hope that the older brother is like, Yes, my brother's home. Oh, I've missed him. I've been so worried. I've been... No, it's actually quite the opposite happens here. Check it out, verse 28. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father. He says, "Look, all these years I've been slay- uh, slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when his son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf." The father says, "My son, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours." But we have to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead, and he's alive again. The older brother is mad. He's absolutely furious. He's not glad that his brother came home. In fact, I love his his little 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 pouty party he throws here. He goes, "Dad, you don't even give me any young goats to celebrate with my friends. Like I, I wish I would use this on my dad. Like, Dad, I want that car. You never let me have anything. You don't even give me my friends goats or nothing. You know." Like And I'm sorry, I get, when I talk about goats, especially when I hear Jesus stories about goats, um, and there are a couple in the Bible, it's kind of strange. Uh, I have to tell a story, a personal story, and it's completely a rabbit trail, it's like a butterfly, we're going to follow it though, because it's a good story. So one time, it was about 12 years ago, I was in West Africa, and uh, I, I did a missionary trip there for about two months with some friends, and we were in Ghana and Togo, and someone actually gave me a goat. Like as a, as a present. They gave me a goat. And so this is how it went down. I was at this kind of important guy's house. He was like a village leader. And we'd gone into his, uh, his house to meet. And he was very honored to have us American boys in his house. And see, I had this long goatee at the time. Like, I've got kind of a, more of a beard now. It was this long goatee. And the, the locals there had given me this really awesome nickname. It was Mr. Abidose. I think I'm saying it right. Mr. Abidose, which I thought was pretty sweet. Like, I got a nickname. Yeah, you don't have a nickname. But I found out that literally translated it, it means Mr. Goat. That's what, that's what it means. And so they're walking around calling me, oh, Mr. Goat, Mr. Goat. And they're telling their friends, Who, which one? Which one of the crazy white Americans? And it's like, oh, the one that looks like a goat. That was me. So we're here in the, in the living room. And the guy's like, I want to give you something. I'm like, sweet, that'd be great. And so uh, he says something to his, to his children and they run off. And then they come back and they hand me a goat. And it's like hog tied, I like guess goat tied. And they hand it to me like by the feet. <laughs> I'm like, Here, um, what do you do when someone gives you a goat like tied by the feet? So I just hold it. Thank you for this goat, I will cherish it, you know, I don't know, so I give it to the guy who's our taxi driver, and the guy takes it outside, and he pops the trunk, he just throws the goat in the trunk, and shuts the thing, which might sound really weird to you, but what do you do with your groceries, right, just throw them in the trunk, so that's what they do, throw the groceries in the trunk, or the goat, I mean, and so the, the, the craziest thing was when I got back to my host's house, uh, they took the goat out of the trunk, and that night, they invited all the neighbors over, and we had goat stew. It was very quick from, uh, it was very, very quick from the, the, the supermarket to the soup. Um, now, the cool thing is this. I, I, I didn't care for the goat soup. Uh, there was, like, still hair on it. And, um, but it was cool that, that they, they made it for me. But I tell you what, I didn't care for the soup, but the celebration was amazing. It was unforgettable. I mean, we're sitting in this third-world country in this little village, and we bring this goat home, and then we, we fed, like, I don't know, eight families. It was amazing. It was really cool. So I can kind of understand what this older brother is saying here. Like, you, you killed the fatted calf for, for my wasteful brother? He wasted all of our inheritance. Dad, seriously, like you don't even kill a goat for me and my friends. This is a big deal. Why are you doing this, Dad? And so the brother's angry because the father seems to be showing favoritism to his young, wasteful brother. So why did, Jay, why did Jesus do this? Why, why did he take this story that was a, a pretty cool story about this guy who's off, and he's got a wayward lifestyle, and then God and the Father accepts him and everything. Why why did he do that? Well, I want to remind you of something we talked about last week. The whole purpose of why Jesus was telling this story in the first place. There's a little trick when you're reading the Bible um, that if, if you're just getting into reading the Bible, maybe you'd like to get started in reading the Bible, it's very important as you're reading any part of the Bible to try to figure out what was the original context of this story. Right, And so there's a couple questions you can ask yourself. You want to jot them down. They're pretty simple, but they might be revolutionary if you've never thought about them before. When you read a passage, you might want to ask something uh, like, who wrote this? Right? Who wrote this? This is Luke. Luke is a, a person who's very educated. He's actually a physician, and he's a follower uh, of Jesus. And then after Jesus actually goes back to heaven, he becomes a missionary with Paul. That's who wrote this. Who wrote this? Who was it written to? That's a question you might want to ask. Why was it written and what's happening in the story. These are basic context clues, and these are things you might have learned in middle school or high school, English class, uh, but it's something that a lot of times we don't think about when we read the Bible. We like to pick verses out of the Bible, take a verse over here, a verse over here, and then push them together and make them say what we want them to say. But this is a story that Jesus told for a very specific reason, and we talked about it last week. What's the context here? Well Jesus has been approached by some religious leaders, and they are pretty upset that he is hanging out with sinful people. So Jesus says, he's standing there, he's talking to tax collectors and sinners is how they're identified. And the religious leaders come up and say, so why are you hanging out with these tax collectors and sinners? I don't get it. You're this good teacher. You're a pretty righteous man. I, I think you could get a little bit of a better audience. In fact, we don't even approve of these people for you to be around. So then Jesus begins to tell the story. Sometimes he addresses the religious leaders with their little you know, discussions. He, sometimes he comes at them pretty sarcastically. Sometimes he comes straightforward. Sometimes he'll quote scripture to them, like Old Testament scripture. This time he chooses to just tell a story. So that's why he's telling the story of the wasteful brother. And so in this story, you know, he's, he has, um, he's outlined God. So he says there's this father, and he's a loving father, and he will run. So God's in the story. He's, he's talked about the sinful people that are there around him, the tax collectors and sinners, as they were called. He talks about them because he says, there's this, there's this younger son. He was blessed with a lot, but he ran off and he wasted it all. And so he, he's included those people. But then at the end, there's a plot twist. He says, "You know, there, there is this cold-shouldered brother who doesn't want to extend grace to anybody. He thinks that because he's been so faithful in doing the work of his father, that he somehow has understood the heart of the father, and he's in, missed the boat completely. And by the way, tax collectors, I mean Pharisees and religious leaders, by the way, Pharisees and religious leaders, that older brother, that's you. That's you. This is you in the story. The reason I'm telling the story is to show you where you fit in to God's economy. So I want to introduce these religious leaders to you a little bit. Sometimes you read through the New Testament and you hear the stories of Jesus and he's always interacting with these people called Pharisees. Right, And you might be like, well, the Pharisees, they were the bad guys, I guess? Are they the bad guys? Are they like the Joker and Bane? Are they like all the evil people in all the comic books? Is that, is that who the Pharisees are? Not exactly, but when they're in Jesus' time period, they're actually not quite getting what God wants them to be getting. So let me introduce you to them a little bit. They were regarded, actually, as the most holy people in Judaism because the, they knew the, the law of the Old Testament better than anybody. They had memorized it. In fact, they had gone through and they had gleaned from the old law over 600, like 613 laws in the Old Testament. And they said, we will not break a single one of these commandments. Which is a great goal, by the way. If God has something he wants us to do, we should try to do it really hard. But they, not only had they found all the rules... They also went through and they said, we are going to be so legalistic about this that we're going to twist the rules a little bit. Make sure we don't even get close to breaking the rules. So they have 613 rules that they've written down from the Old Testament. And then they've added a ton more. And depending on which kind of sect of Phariseeism that you belong to, you follow different ones. Let me tell you a little bit about these guys. And it's one of the things that frustrated Jesus. For example, in the Old Testament, there was these laws governing what happened on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, it was the Jewish day of worship and rest. It was celebrated on what we traditionally now call Saturday. And Jews today even still do that. Some of them, they, many of them, they, they worship on Saturday. They will not work on Saturday. Many Christians will observe Sunday as a Sabbath. It's why Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday. It's exactly why Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday. It's just, it's a good principle. Take a day of worship and a day of rest. It's a good thing. But the Pharisees, they pushed it really, really far. For example, they would say, for example, uh, it, it's, it's, it's okay to ride your donkey on the Sabbath day. Anyone can ride a donkey to get somewhere, but you can't work on the Sabbath. So if you use like a switch to, to, to slap your donkey with and, and to make him go faster, well, that's considered working, and that's breaking the law, so that's a sin. It's a Sabbath law. It's, it's extra laws. There, there was another one that said that uh, working was not permitted on the Sabbath day, and so they said, we don't plow our fields on the Sabbath day. You're plowed a field. You're mowed your grass. It's hard work, right? Makes sense. Rest. The Pharisees would say, a man should not even spit on the ground on the Sabbath day. Because if you spit on the ground, you might disturb some soil, which is a form of plowing, which is work. So, yeah, that's a sin. Right? It's crazy. It's like, I don't think that's what God had in mind. He wants you to rest and worship. He doesn't want you to be crazy. He had other laws. There, was, there were there was some of them that followed this one rule that said a woman was not allowed to look into a mirror on the Uh, The Sabbath day, because in doing so, she might see a gray hair, and she might try to pluck it, and that would be considered work. And they weren't all Sabbath laws. Some of them involve other religious things like fasting. So uh, there were a lot of different times during the year where they would fast. And if there was a fast, which is a time when you don't consume food for one specific purpose or another, and a lot of times they would do this, they would not eat for a period of time. Instead, they would pray or focus on God, right? And so during some of these fasts, they would consider it sinful to feed hungry children. We're fasting here, people. We're fasting. Don't feed the children. The children aren't making any spiritual commitment right here. God gets that. That's not how the rule was intended to be used, but they would stretch it and they would pull it around. They, they, they had rules. Uh, adultery was something they were very scared of for obvious reasons. Lust is a big sin. It can really consume a man. And so many of the men said, okay, not only is adultery a sin, it is unlawful to look at a woman ever, which is difficult because women are kind of, everywhere and so they would literally walk around with their heads to the ground like this and they would like bumping the trees, running the fences and poles, they'd hit each other, they'd get run over by horses and chariots, I'm not making this up they literally would, they had a nickname for themselves, they called themselves the bruised and bleeding pharisees and they wore that as a, as a moniker of, of pride yes we're bleeding and I'm, I'm a little bit unconscious right now because I'm so so committed to the law now on one hand you want to give them props and say good job you really want to do the right thing but on the other hand I'm going is that really what God wanted? You running into trees and stuff? It, it, do you think that's really what God meant when He said, "Don't commit adultery? Do you think He meant don't spit on the ground? Do you think He don't, didn't he meant pull gray hairs like, don't feed hungry children?" No. No, and so Jesus addresses these Pharisees because he's, he's really frustrated with them. At one point, probably because of this, uh, this bruised and battered Pharisee sect, he called them "blind leaders." He said, you're like blind people leading blind people. You're not even paying attention. It's not the first time he does it. In Matthew 23, he does it a a different time. Matthew writes, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, you are like whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside. You got a tomb, you paint it nice and white and pretty, put some white paint on the outside, maybe put some flower pots outside. He says, but on the inside, you are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you, you appear to people as righteous. But on the inside, and you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. See, the Pharisees spent so much time trying to look good that they were ne- never able to understand that they didn't even really know the Father. So they walked up to Jesus and they said, What are you doing hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus responds to that story, that question with a story about a guy who didn't look too good on the outside. In fact, he had really royally screwed up his entire life. And about a father who readily embraced him back into his loving arms. And that was probably a story that pretty well ticked them off. Just like you, Jesus. Talk about loving people who can't get their act straight. But then Jesus finishes the story by saying, but there was an older brother who couldn't forgive He was an older brother that was so close to his father because he worked so hard, and he kept such great appearances, but in truth, he never really got what his father was all about. And that older brother is you, Pharisees and religious leaders. Have you ever been the problem? Have you ever been the problem? I got several family members that use me as their own personal geek squad. Like for technical issues, they call me and they're like, this doesn't work, that doesn't work. And so I'm troubleshooting. I'm like, have you tried this? Have you tried that? And then there's this moment where something hits me and I go, "Uh, okay. Is your computer plugged in? And they're like, huh, let me, oh, okay, hold on. Yep, that fixed it, thanks. And I'm like, you're the problem. You're the problem. Have you ever just been the problem? Why is my marriage always in a funk? Oh, it's me. Why is there always arguing at work? Why doesn't my boss trust me? Oh, it's me. Why are there always problems with the neighbors or problems with our kids? Oh, it's me. I'm the problem. And that's what Jesus is telling the Pharisees. You're the problem. There's another passage in Matthew also where Jesus talks to them, and and it really hits on the head exactly what Jesus is saying to these people. He says in Matthew 15, 7 through 9, and this is just a part of that. He says, these people, the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I don't know about you, but I want to align my heart with the heart of God. I don't want to be a person who's like honoring God with their lips like, Oh, yeah, Jesus, hallelujah, hallelujah. I'm in church every Sunday. I'm working at the soup kitchen. I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And God's like, Man, you're honoring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. I don't want to be that person. I don't think that you do either. Jesus tells a story about two sons. And I think that both of them can teach us something about the heart of God. This morning, I want, I want to help us align with the heart of God, and maybe this is your first time here, maybe this is your first time in church in a long time, maybe you're just kind of getting started with the God-Jesus church thing, and you're just feeling it out, but let me just tell you, one of the biggest things you can do is start to discover what the heart of God is. How does He feel about you? How does He feel about the world? And how would He have you feel about Him and feel about the world. And so we're going to talk about that in just a minute here. There's two brothers, and I think that both of us can teach us something about the the heart of God. There's the first brother. He had run away from the heart of God, the heart of his father, right? He's representing people. He had run away from the heart of the father, and he hit rock bottom, and he had to go home, and he had to ask for forgiveness. That's, That's the one brother. We're going to set him over here. But then there's the other brother. The other brother was a different story. He was confident that his work for the father was going to be good enough. It was all he needed. But somehow, in the midst of working alongside the father, he missed the heart of the father. He was with the father, but somehow he missed the heart of the father. I do need to point this out. The father does forgive the older son. I don't know if you called it at the very end of the story. He goes, My son. We have to celebrate. He could have been like, okay, you're out of the will. Done. Disrespect me like that in front of my servants. Done. No. Both sons are embraced again by the Father. Both of them are different, completely different ends of the spectrum when it comes to how they're living their lives. Yet somehow they both miss the heart of the Father. And so what I want to do right now is I want to stand these two men on stage in front of you. And I'll ask you a question. Which one of these two men do you most relate with? You spend some time running away. You spent some time being too concerned about putting on appearances. I think one of these two categories is one that, that all of us could somewhat relate to, and I want to go through them, and I want to look at maybe the red flags or the things that they could have done differently that really could have built them up and changed the outcome of the story for them. And so maybe you feel more like the younger brother. Maybe you do. Uh, you're, you're starting to realize that you've been given so much by God, by the Holy Father, by the Heavenly Father, and... and, and you should be more grateful for, for it, right? And so you've got so many blessings. And like the younger son, we have these things that we've been given, these re- resources that we have, yet we really don't deserve them. And I want to kind of give this broad category for them. And they all start with T, so it's easy to remember, especially if you write notes. God has given us a lot of things. He's given us time. He's given us talents. He's given us treasures. And you can put a lot of other things that don't start with the letter T, and that's okay. You can teach that message another time. But time... Talents and treasure is a good broad category to think about the things that God has given you. And I'm gonna ask you something. All of us have this wealth of resources, but how do you use them to find the heart of the Father? Let's go through those time, talent, and treasure. We'll do each one kind of quickly. First, time. Each one of us has 24 hours in the day, right? Every one of you. Anybody get a little extra time? A little less time? No, I feel like I have less than 24 hours, but not true. 24 hours, the same amount of time. What do you do with your 24 hours? Just think about it. What do you do? Sometimes you, you compare yourself to someone like, um, like Bill Gates or even someone like, uh, like Sean Combs, Puff Daddy. Like that. Those guys are some of the most productive people in the world. And they're like, how do they do it? They must have a secret time machine. No, they have the same 24 hours that I do. And so I look at their, their and then I look at people who just don't accomplish anything. And I'm like, I feel so productive, right? What do you do with your 24 hours? And and let me ask you this. As you're using your 24 hours, does it ever cross your mind to think, what would the heart of the Father have me do with my 24 hours? It's something he gave us, right? He breathes life into our lungs. He gives us existence. He gives us sustenance. He gives us what we need to survive. He gives us 24 hours in the day. Some days are better than others. We can admit that. But what are you doing with your 24 hours? I I love in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul is an author who is a great missionary uh, to the non-Jewish world. And he says this in 15, uh, Paul 5, 15, he says, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Verse 16, he says, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. As you look at your time. How can you make the most of every opportunity? I'm not talking about building a Fortune 500 company, which I believe you can still do with the heart of God. But instead saying, I want to make the most of every opportunity because I have been blessed with this time. This was a gift from God. It's a resource he's given me. How can I use it to further God's kingdom? How can I use it with the heart of the Father so time is a resource, and we could talk more about it. But just think about it. The 24 hours you have, how do you use it? Time. The second we've got is talents. Every person has a set of abilities and skills and passions that you can apply to your own life. And we call those talents. And, and they're different across the board. Everything's, everybody's got different things they can offer. And maybe for you, it's your great ability to, to just interact with people, make friends, and be some kind of a counselor. Maybe for you, it's the ability to run a business. Maybe for you, it's the ability to, to be a great teacher. Whatever it is, you got all these things. Now, here's something. We're going to go back to the story of the prodigal son. The thing is that he has these talents, like all of us do. And I'm willing to bet that the very things that got him into some of the trouble that he was in were his talents. Because you can take your talents and you can use them for good, or you can use them for evil. And it might be that he had this amazing ability to just build relationships and make friends. And he could have taken that and he could have conquered the world. Instead, he hooks up with a bunch of slum people and, and gets drugged down, and he take that talent that he had and he built it. Maybe he had this great ability for, for being a host and throwing parties. And he could have used that to build relationships and build community, but what did he do? He threw parties, and he invited prostitutes over, and he wasted his inheritance. It's very likely that the talents that he used to kill his life could have been talents that if he'd put them to use for the heart of his father, man, what could he have done different? How could he have put those talents to better use? And I want to ask you the same thing. What are your gifts? What are your talents? What are you talented with? And how are you using them? Whose kingdom are you building? Are you building your kingdom based on your talents? Are you building a kingdom where you sit at the top of the throne and you're like, yes, I am the best in my field and I do what I do best because I am the best. Why? Because I want to be known as the best. Or have you ever considered going, how can I be the best at what I do so that I can continue to make the name of God famous? Right? Same talents, put to different use. I got a friend, uh, he's, he's several years older than me, he was actually a great mentor to me growing up and the guy found himself in his early 20s, I think, in a pretty bad financial situation. He was he was flat broke. He was on the edge of homelessness. Uh, he was not living the God way. He was not living with the heart of the Father. He told me that at one point in his life, he was waiting tables, and the only way he could survive was to eat the leftovers he found on people's tables. Right? Maybe some of you have been there. It was bad. And he told me there was even other things that he did that he was so ashamed of that he was just like, I can't believe I had to do that to get by. But when he was in his early 20s, he became a Christian. He gave his life over to the heart of the Father, and he started living life differently. And so eventually he moves to what was my hometown, and, and he starts going to the church that I attended, and, and he starts this little Bible study in his house, a little book study and Bible study. And he starts inviting young adults over to his house. And man, I remember there were times when he had 20, 25 people in his living room, and I was one of them. And, and that guy made such an impact on my life. See, this guy is a charismatic person. He could he could sell a, uh, he could sell a ski jacket to a polar bear. Like he could sell anything. He could his his personality is amazing and he could gather people around him for evil. But it took that talent And after he found the heart of the Father, he said, now, I'm going to bring people together for the love of God. And time and time and time again, he built a youth ministry at our church. And there are are many people. You guys have seen Glenn Crocker. Uh, He's another guy who preaches up here sometimes, and I'm not preaching, and he comes into town. This guy was actually a mentor to Glenn as well. And because of this guy, probably Glenn and myself and my brother Jason, we're all in ministry today. Why? Because some guy said, I'm going to find the heart of the Father. I'm going to invest in these high school students. But it hasn't ended for him. He called me the other day. I used to be, uh, he used to be a financial investor at this, at this uh, a firm that all of you guys would know about if I said their name, and he was doing pretty well, and he was making pretty good money. But something hit him in, about the heart of the Father, and he, and he called me and said, man, I, I got to start my own business. I got to start my own business, and he did, and he started a new financial investment business, but with the heart of the Father. So not only does he help people set up Roth IRAs and all kinds of accounts for retirement, one of his biggest passions is to help people use Christian principles to get out of debt. It's a talent that he has. He's a whiz with numbers. He's good with people. And he could build his own kingdom in a heartbeat. He's one of the most talented guys I know. But instead, he's invested in the heart of the Father. A few weeks ago, he called me. and said, I got this idea. I said, what is it? He said, well, I've started a nonprofit. It's called, uh, I think, Great Commission Ministries or something like that. I said, okay, what's it all about? And he said, well, I figured out how to, how to raise money. I figured out how to make money. I figured out how to bring people together. What would you think if I started a nonprofit that's sole purpose was to raise funds for missionaries and church plants like Venture Church, whose sole focus is to reach out to people who are far from God and, and, and haven't experienced church and God before. What would what you think about that? I was like, that would be awesome. He goes, yeah, cool, because I already did that. And I was wondering if you'd come speak at a banquet that I'm having soon. I was like, whoa. Now, this is a guy who had immense talent and he discovered the heart of God and it has changed lives. We've got time, we've got talent. The last thing we have is treasures. And there's a lot of things that we can treasure in life. Um, relationships, opportunities. But there's one that Jesus talked about a lot, and that was, that was money. That was our finances. And I'll be straight, like, at our church, we don't talk much about money. One thing that I know about money is that a lot of you have had bad experiences with church hearing about money, because I think sometimes it's presented in an unhealthy way. However, Jesus talks about it a whole lot, so it needs to be spoken about. But it needs to be dealt with in a healthy way. So in this context, I want to talk to you about what Jesus says about our money. And, and he looked at the way that this wasteful son lived and say, how could it have been different? The younger brother takes his father's treasure and he blows it on himself. Was it his to spend? Well sure, it was his. It was his inheritance. He could do with it whatever he wanted to. But where did it come from? It was from the father. I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to stop thinking of your money as your money to build your kingdom instead I want to challenge you to just simply make this simple shift in your head to say everything I have is a blessing from God and this is God's money to build God's kingdom what do you invest your money in what, what are your entertainment wishes what are the things you spend at your house are you building your own kingdom it's real easy to do You can get some sweet cars and a 60-inch LCD TV in your living room, and it looks really cool, and you can build your own kingdom. We do it all the time. Or maybe the way you build your own kingdom is you're kind of the hand-to-mouth kind of situation right now where, like, I just really haven't been smart with finances at all, but it's okay because I'm making ends meet. But either way, whose kingdom are you building? I want to challenge you to think about what it looks like to build God's kingdom. One principle that the Jews used was to take 10% of everything they owned and dedicate it to God. Straight up, it's what they did. They called it a tithe. Tithe means a tenth. And so they would do that, and, and this is what they would do that for. They would say, God, I believe that you can do more with 90% of my possessions. You can do more for me with 90% than I could do with 100%. I mean, I just trust you with that. It's the way that the Jews would trust God. They say, I'm going to set aside some of this just for your kingdom work, just for your efforts, just for your love. And, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, the tithe is something that is extremely controversial in churches. Because people will say, you know, what, Jesus never commanded us to tithe, and you know what? They're exactly right. Jesus never commanded us to tithe. And so, for all of us in the room who are like God-chasing, grace-shaped love agents and we're like, I was wondering when Christians is going to talk about money, um, you're off the hook. Jesus never commanded you to tithe. You don't have to. But let me tell you this, Jesus over and over and over talks about giving everything. <laughs> he raises the bar on everything. There's this passage from the Old Testament though, where God really, really, really shows up. And in Malachi chapter 3, he says this about a tithe. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Check this out. This is God talking. He says, test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there's not enough room to store it all. Here's the deal. The heart of God, if we're talking about our treasures, the heart of God is to take care of his children. My wife and I have decided from day one, when we first started having income, when we first combined our, our lifestyles together and got married, we said we're, we're going to make this a principle that we follow. And we've done it, and we've, we've done it ever since. And there have been times where it's like, man, I just don't know this is going to be a smart decision this month. Because looking at the bills based on what's in the bank account, and let me tell you what, man, God always shows up. Not, as, not, long, not only has he always taken care of us, but more often than not, there's more than we need. Because in God's economy, he's like, 10%. Yo, I feed thousands of people with a couple pieces of bread and a couple fish. Your 10% is easy for me to work with. And I'll take the 90% and I will bless you so that you can bless others. And and I'm not standing up here to stand on a pedestal because I'm totally not the guy on a pedestal. But I've watched God work with our finances and it's amazing how much we're able to help other people now. We're not rich people. Trust me. And God can do that for you. Why? He says in Malachi 3, he says, test me in this. So this is my challenge for you for that. Test him. Call his bluff. God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. A great place to invest would be here at Venture Church. We're doing amazing things in the city. We're doing things to change lives. I love seeing lives change. But maybe you've been somewhere where you've been like, dude, I, I don't get it. I don't get the church thing. I think all churches want to do is ask for money. I don't. God's taking care of Venture Church. What I want you to do is trust God. Find somewhere in God's kingdom where you can invest and see if God's not lying. He'll take care of you. That's the heart of the father. He takes care of his children. And so we have time, we have talents, and we have treasure. And that's the younger brother. And he wasted all of that. But you don't have to. Because the heart of God is that he takes care of his children, that he wants to further his kingdom so that the world can be a better place. In the minutes that we have left, I want to take a look at the older brother. Maybe you feel more like you can relate with him. Maybe you look at him, you're like, man, I kind of... I kinda had it easy, I grew up in a good home, never really struggled much, my parents were good people, found my way into church pretty early, I've never really had a wayward period of my life. And maybe that's you. And to you I would say, awesome, I am so happy for you. And don't feel like you gotta mess that up. Just hang in there and do that because that is very good. But let's learn something from the older brother. There's so many people who are Christians, and they hang out with the Father, in the Father's house, with the Father's people, and they got the Father's music bumping in their stereo, and they got the Father's t-shirt and the Father's bracelets on, you know what I'm saying? The whole Christian subculture. They got the Father on lock, but they completely missed his heart. And so you might be adventurous sometimes, and I don't know if you notice, but sometimes we got some crazy people up in here. You might be one of them. I know I am. And you might look at some people and go, you know what, if they're in a bad situation, they deserve it. <laughs> Good luck with that. That's not the heart of the Father. <laughs> you might find that we have people who have needs and you go, I, I, I don't know, man, I got to kind of look out for my own. I don't think you got the heart of the Father. I don't, I don't know that that's the spirit we have at this church at all. But you might have come from a place where that is a little bit in your heart. And you've struggled with that. Let it go. Don't be the older brother. Because the father looks back at you and says, Son, don't you know? We got to celebrate, man. We got to celebrate because my son, my daughter was lost. They were dead, and now they are found. They are alive. Join the party. When we're looking for the heart of the father, I, I love. Uh, the fact that God says, I want to send you a helper to live alongside of you. And so maybe you've heard about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. It's God's Spirit. It's God's Spirit that can move in and among us and help our lives and help to prod us in the right direction in our life. It's the Holy Spirit of God. And when Paul, that, that apostle that I was talking about that uh, was a missionary to non-Jewish people, in Galatians chapter 5, he talks about the Spirit. And he's, this is cool. When, when you become a Christian, the Bible teaches us that when we're baptized into Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit which is God's presence living in and among us, right? It's an amazing thing. In Galatians chapter 5, this is what Paul says about the Spirit. This is what it does in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You remember Jesus was talking to the, the lawyers over here who were worried about the law. And he's like, look, there is no law against love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. No law against that. The Spirit brings that into our life. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's keep in step with the Spirit, guys. Let's find the heart of the Father. The Holy Spirit brings along with Him the heart of the Father. And we can take these principles, and we can apply them in our life, and we can pour them into other people's lives. And you might be like the younger son, and you might be like the older son, and both of them were totally wasted, But the father stands at the road with open arms. And he says, come home. Let's change this world together. Let me pray for you today. God, we love you so much. We thank you for the blessings that you give us through your son. And we just praise you for, I I just praise you for the life change that's happening in in our church community here. Uh, I I praise you for those who uh, might feel like the prodigal son. uh, and, And they came back and they might have felt totally wasted. And then they've, man, they've just embraced you. I praise you for those of us who have uh, maybe grown up a little closer to church and, and, and you, but maybe there have been huge times in our life where we missed your heart. Well, I pray that we can find your heart, we can invest in your heart, and we can change this world because your heart is the heart that changes the world. We love you so much. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.